Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Matthew Durr, the Executive Director of Chelsea Green Foundation and the Editor and Acquirer at Chelsea Green Publishing. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Aaron, and thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I am as well, and we've got a lot of, of really fun and joyful topics to cover today that are essentially uh, storytelling uh, regarding your your career, your work, your service in the world, and you're connected to so many thought leaders and change makers and, and have done so much in your own right in, in that regard. It's a real joy to have this opportunity to visit with you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I really think a lot of uh, of the work that you're doing and the and the conversations you've been able to pull together and some really remarkable people. So uh, humbled to to be among them and and to have some time to sit with you. It's gonna be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew Durr is a trustee and executive director of Chelsea Green Foundation, and also, as I mentioned, editor and acquirer of Chelsea Green Publishing. He also uh, served as president of Sterling College in Vermont, where he co-founded the Wendell Berry Farming Program. Matthew has also been a visiting fellow at the Great Lakes Colleges Association, the, an interim president at Antioch College, and has also served a number of NGOs in the capacity of treasurer, secretary, chair, et cetera, including treasurer at the Center for an Agricultural Economy, secretary and treasurer at Work Colleges Association, chair at the Vermont Food System Higher Education Consortium, and national advisory board at the Sphinx Music Organization, which I, I'm really, really excited to talk about. Um, and so, Matthew, maybe just to dive in here and kick things off for us, um tell us what is chelsea green what what's happening at this organization that's that's so special and and why are you drawn to be a part of the leadership at chelsea green yeah you know it's a little daunting to hear your whole professional life listed in that way i, I started to feel a little tired listening to it because there's a lot of work and and many relationships and um that that all of that entails and you know i've had the chance to work with really terrific colleagues all along my professional life and the transition to 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 chelsea green was another part of that story you know i um had the chance while i was president at, at sterling to be able to interact with a lot of the authors who um, were writing and publishing books with with chelsea green you know they're amazing practitioner writers, people grounded in you know, hands-on learning, which is very much the, the mode of education at, at, at Sterling College. And so in that context, I was exposed to some really sort of leading edge thinking um, uh, among these writers. And so when the opportunity came and it was time for me to become president um, emeritus, and I had a chance to begin some consulting work with my friend and colleague, uh, Margot Baldwin, who co-founded uh, Chelsea Green Publishing, I leapt at the opportunity because of 
the richness of the conversations that I'd experienced and my own experience with, with Chelsea Green's, um, you know, uh, the books they've published over, over the years and the way in which my life was informed by, uh, by the authors that I'd read. You know, I, I think it's, there's an obvious connection between the world of, of publishing and, and higher education. But what I think uh, helps colleges like Antioch and, and, and Sterling stand apart uh, is their focus on mission. And Chelsea Green, you know, and its long standing conviction about the politics and practice of uh, um, sustainable living or ecological living now um, reminded me a lot of the ethos and culture of a mission driven institution though uh, a for-profit company. And so to be able to actually look at how that kind of vision and mission could be applied in a different kind of context, a different sector of the economy, but with great thinkers and ideas was, was really compelling for me. Yeah, it's absolutely tremendous. And of course, uh, we're very happy to share that uh, the Why on Earth community is in partnership with Chelsea Green Publishing around the podcast. We're doing a number of episodes with Chelsea Green authors and so happy to share their expertise and wisdom. And uh, just recently uh, recorded with uh, Maria Rodale, her okay. very intriguing book. Yeah. Um, uh, it's love Nature Magic, yeah. Love great. Nature Magic. Yeah, I have the three yeah. words locked. I just yeah. haven't locked the sequence in my memory yet. Yeah. Love Nature Magic. And that's such an extraordinary, reading that book is a really extraordinary experience. The connection between the two organizations is is, is so clear. I mean, you you've, I think you have stewardship, well-being, prosperity are all parts of your mission. And you know, for the foundation, which we haven't yet really talked about, the Chelsea Green Foundation, which is is sort of new in in this world, it's you know all about ecological and, and societal well-being. So the the work you're doing and the work Chelsea Green Foundation, the work Chelsea Green, the company is doing, uh, it's not a big surprise that they've they've come together and that that you're talking to a lot of authors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and no doubt, and it's such a joy uh, getting to read the books and chat with the authors in that way. Well, mentioning the foundation, let's let's hear about it. Why why did Chelsea Green create a foundation, and and what are you guys doing through the foundation? Yeah, the company is nearing, you know, 40 years of existence, sort of marking that moment in its history. And just to be clear, I work with a team of of editors and with with Margot, people who are acquiring and working with with writers around the world. We have an office in London, office in, uh, in, in the United States, and it was a maturing, independent, mission driven uh, publishing house that reached a certain point in its development where I think founding, creating a, a corporate related but independent foundation made sense as a way to concentrate its uh, philanthropic commitment. And Chelsea Green's always been, I think, a, a generous corporation. It's an ESOP, so it doesn't have the tax advantages that um, a lot of companies have around philanthropy. So it's really from the heart. It's really from the mission. And uh, the vision for the for the foundation was to to um, to really take what that uh, corporation ethos, the culture of Chelsea Green, uh, was all about, and apply it in the world of of philanthropy. 
So much of what we're doing in the foundation, it, its work sort of falls into three different categories. We can see the history and the legacy that it's supporting in its connection to uh, the, the history of, of the company. So uh, the initial gift um, uh, from uh, the company founded, uh, got us underway. And um, we devised a, a sort of a, a three-part approach to our work. And we decided that much like Chelsea Green, the company, which is you know, very much a hands-on organization and business, that we would be an operational foundation, a private operating foundation, rather than just a foundation that awarded grants. And the difference is, you know, in IRS code, the operating foundations actually create programming. And so uh, part of what we do is um, to uh, work with people who might have um, unconventional voices, um, are at a point in their writing or, or thinking um, where they need a little bit more uh, support in doing their work or their organization um, within that context. And, and the foundation will award them grants. And then we work with those uh, granting partners uh, to create programming, uh, gatherings, events, content that, that we promote. Um, and we're really just at the beginning. So if people begin to, to look at what we're doing. We, um, we hosted a, a series of interviews with Vandana Shiva not too long ago. And so we create content, video content, um, not as rich as what you're doing um, or as mature as what you're doing, but very much in the same vein of trying to capture the ideas of, of, of people who are really thinking critically about this particular moment, not only in, in our um, social history, but in our history uh, and connection uh, with, with the natural world. And then finally, we're, we're trying to advocate for good ideas. And, and that's something that Chelsea Green, the publishing company, has always done. Um, you know, I know that um, you had Ben Raskin on here recently. So yeah. these aren't, you know, that's a book about wood chips. Those are really good ideas and really important ideas. Um, and they're also, you know, what Vandana Shiva is, is talking about, which are these really big ideas, uh, Chris Smaj and others, big ideas about the future of, of agriculture. So just as the company does, the foundation sort of um, spans that, that, that um, uh, galaxy as well. Mm. That's so wonderful. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, for individuals or organizations out there who think they might want to engage with the foundation, what's the best way for them to go about, you know, ascertaining whether there might be a fit or learn more about uh, what you guys are focused on? So, you know, I personally respond to queries about uh, uh, ideas and, and funding things that um, may align with with our, our mission. I think that part of what uh, someone needs to do is to begin to become really familiar with with the foundation through through its website and um, I sort through all of those emails. The actual formal process, um, and this won't surprise anyone uh, listening, uh, is that we have a nominating board and the nominating board is anonymous. Um, many Chelsea Green authors and and people who are not uh, affiliated or haven't historically been affiliated with Chelsea Green who are out in the world and in the spaces where um, we think uh, interesting ideas will originate from are uh, the formal way that a, a proposal for funding would come forward. But I think what's really interesting about being a private operating foundation is there isn't just one way that we're uh, partnering with 
um, folks who, who, who share in, in our vision and in, in, in our work. So granting is one part of it, creating gatherings, it's another part of it, and then advocating for good ideas is, is that, that third part. That's so exciting. Do you have a, a sense for uh, what we might expect in upcoming gatherings and like where, where are these held like uh, virtually or in person or both? How does that work? Yeah, so we hosted our just our very first gathering in March, and it was it was a real it was a success, but it was the first one. And as as you know from any kind of series of things that you do, you learn and you build as as you go along. So this was a small gather gathering. Um, we had uh, twelve people at um, the Canelo Project, which is, which is in Elgin, um, uh, Arizona, um, just outside Patagonia, outside of of Tucson. And Bill and Athena Steen, who founded the Canelo Project, uh, were some of the first authors, you know, talking about the legacy in this 40-year history. So, um, their Straw Bale uh, House uh, book was one of the really uh, first big uh, bestsellers at, at Chelsea Green. And so they're, they've been important to the company. And they hosted the, the very first gathering. And that conversation was devoted to thinking about tools for conviviality. And we at the foundation we've developed a pretty deep interest in the writing of Ivan Illich, and so we brought people together who had an interest in Illich, and who had an interest in in exploring particularly at this technologically um, um, accelerating relationship that humans have with technology, and so some ways that are pretty disconcerting to have a deeper conversation about. Um, tools for conviviality. And so I think uh, the foundation has a vision for these gatherings. It's formed around particular ideas. I think we'll continue to, to have conversations about the writing of Ivan Illich. Um, but given my background and one of the reasons that um, John Ray, who was the president of Schumacher College joined the board of, uh, of the foundation, um, the reasons we've come together is that we want to talk about education and we want to talk about higher education, um, what's wrong and where there are some models of hope like Schumacher College and, and like Sterling College and like Antioch and a few other places where we think uh, good practices, timely practices for, for the ecological circumstances we face um, are, are being forwarded. So I, I'm imagining that in this next year, our focus will uh, be on education and specifically higher education. Yeah. Well, it's so exciting to hear about. And we've had a number of other uh, guests on the podcast series who have done amazing work in higher education, including I'm thinking of Bud Sorensen, who led um, uh, Babson College for many years and also did a lot of work at Harvard and has been uh, instrumental in the conscious capitalism movement. Um, and uh, I'm curious to to get your your thoughts on, you know, the state of higher education and where you might see things going with with maybe some optimism as as the world continues to evolve so rapidly or or perhaps some of the things you're seeing that might cause a little more pessimism than optimism what what's your like assessment of where we're at with higher ed right now well higher ed's a mess uh, <laughs> so I'll just i'll work backward from that uh, uh but there are some examples of really terrific work being done 
um, in in higher education and some really remarkable people who only want to do good in in their work. And you know the the Babson example is an interesting one. Um, you know what he was able to accomplish there was transformative to that institution, but also recalibrated other institutions to think about entrepreneurialism differently and in the way that could be informed by a deeper set of values and convictions than a bottom line. And so my question is, you know, that's a very successful example. So I, I, I sat on the New England um, Higher Education Commission, the accrediting body, and it, it gave me a view of a, a lot of different institutions. Babson, really successful in, institution, um, really every measure that, that you could come up with, a transformed institution from what it was you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. What topic would be more important right now than the human relationship with the natural world? And where are those colleges that are going to focus time and attention uh, on stewardship as their principal reason for being, as their mission for being. So I'm very much, uh, you know, come from the tradition of the liberal arts. And so stepping outside of the model of STEM or very focused training, not that there is anything wrong with training, it's a part of education. Um, and thinking about the way in which colleges could begin to focus on the critical thinking citizenry, you know, both in the sense of the planet and, and our communities as the reason for being um, versus what seems to have happened, which is to take a look at some place like Babson and say, well, what they've really been successful at is building buildings, building endowment, building uh, chair uh, positions, and missing the, the point of actually, I think, what was important about what they accomplished. Yeah. And so the sheer competitive nature of higher education for enrollment is undermining its integrity. Because um, these smaller institutions that actually had different kinds of opportunities to distinguish themselves as, as Sterling did around ecology and agriculture and that human relationship with the natural world. I mean, it can be nursing, it can be, it can be any number of, of different kinds of areas of, uh, of focus. But uh, what has ultimately happened is that the smaller colleges that could have had that kind of uh, mission-driven vision became many universities trying to do everything to expand the net um, and capture as many uh, enrolled students as they possibly could. And at the same time, they worked to drive down costs um, by uh, converting uh, their faculty to adjunct faculty and, and making smaller and smaller faculty. So you asked me a very big question, what's wrong with higher education? That is, that is a small list but I would say it's lost its moral compass, which is the mm. most important problem. And it's uh, now uh, a race to uh, cutting in order to become more effective rather than applying a, a vision of what's good and what can be done um, with the resources at hand. And, and there are many complications, certainly as a college president, um, interim president and president at a couple of different institutions and 
an accrediting um, board member, I saw those complications and um, navigating this time, not to mention a global pandemic that really undermined higher education. Um, this is a really hard time for college <laughs> residents. That has nothing to do with my transition, I'm sure. Um, but it's, um, it is a moment, and the reason the foundation wants to have this conversation, it is a moment in which we should have already taken stock and be planning and thinking about what higher education looks like next. And I think that's that's the conversation that the foundation wants to, 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 to engage in, um, putting everything that we thought about higher education on the table. Um, can I give you one more example? Please, yeah, this is great. I, I, I'm, I'm curious what your questions are, but I, what the pandemic did to higher education um, in an economic sense, in, in, in student confidence sense, I think is clear. You can read that in major publications, the New York Times and, and other places where there are all kinds of alternative views about what that was about and what happened. But most importantly, I think it said and this connects to the reason why I think we're looking at uh, tools for conviviality at Illich, is that all education is the same no matter how you get it. However you're exposed to the ideas, whether that's online um, uh, and uh, you know the, the pandemic uh, with online courses, even for the most hands-on of colleges uh, was a gutting experience. It was tremendously difficult for faculty to make that transition. You know, I have friends who were teaching opera by Zoom, not an easy thing to do. Right. Agriculture by Zoom, not an easy thing to do. And what it's done is it's sort of exposed, and I think some good can come from this, it's exposed the, the critical nature of hands-on education as what I think students really aspire to find, as opposed to what we were able to cobble together many institutions during that that um, that uh, COVID experience, so uh, it's it's a really shaken higher education to its core, and especially small colleges. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this is this is bringing up for me two different <laughs> two different thoughts, and you know, one my my son Hunter um, had his freshman year of college during COVID. He he finished high school. Mm -hmm. during that first spring of COVID, right? A very strange kind of graduation ceremony. And then a few months later started college and, and he would wake up in his dorm, you know, go to the cafeteria to get food, come back to his dorm and then have anywhere from seemed like eight to 10 hours of online screen time learning. And not surprisingly, he, he got pretty depressed. Thankfully, he was located close by to me here. And I could easily go grab them and we'd go up in the woods or head into town or whatever to mix it up a little bit. But uh, even for a, a resilient and resourceful young man like him, it was a, a very challenging time. And I know one that he probably won't won't soon forget. Yeah. You know, and go ahead. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that 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 social piece because I was really focusing on the classroom experience was was yeah. transformed in ways that I think were um, not progressive, not forward. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the other piece of it, of course, is you know, any of us. I'm I'm in my mid fifties now. That reflect back, what do I remember from my undergraduate experience? I remember the relationships. I 
you know, there's some lectures that were um, impactful, and I certainly remember some of them. I remember books that I read. If you really press me, I, I can um, think of those things. But what leaps to mind is the maturity that came about as a result of being in spaces, both academic and social spaces, with with my peers, with yeah. with faculty, um, and that wasn't uh, that couldn't be replicated in the context of of the changes we made. Uh, uh, for public health reasons. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I, I'm so sorry. There were so many problems with higher education before the pandemic. So if, if those who say, well, this is really the origin story is, is 2020, I don't think I'm right. But your son and a whole uh, cohort of uh, students really missed out on an experience uh, that I certainly cherished myself and I know you and others do from state universities to, to, to small colleges. What I think is really important too to remember is that you know the vast majority, many, many more students are still impacted by it. Nothing, it hasn't gone back to what it was. And, and I think those in the tension of fitting pieces back together and higher education being in flux there is some opportunity to talk about what should come next. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah the, the, the other thought that was triggering for me as, as you were describing this is uh, a little essay I came across, I think back in graduate school by William Irwin Thompson when he was at MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology back in the 1970s. And he was already foreseeing the advent of global communication connectivity through the internet and described this in the title of his essay, Meta Industrial Village. He, he foresaw an opportunity for us to relocalize our connections with soil and food and water and land stewardship and community while essentially each engaging as a unique node in this global, globally connected, you know, quote unquote village, if you will, uh, for learning and for idea sharing and for devolved uh, or evolved uh, democratic govern governance and so on. And, you know, I'm curious if, if you could wave your magic wand and, you know, take the best that the technology has to offer right now or what it might be offering in the near future and and blend that with some of the other needs and opportunities you're seeing as an educator. like what would you love to see play out over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years in education? Yeah. You know, I, 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 it comes back to this idea of what is it, what is a convivial tool, right? Yeah. You know, if, if I think about the ways in which technology um, and advancing technology became um, increasingly important, to the ways accentuated the ways in which good teachers taught, that's the sweet spot, right? You know, you take an iPad into the field in a soil science course, and you have access to this really wide array of information that you did not have 10 years earlier. Yeah. But when the background of that uh, use of that tool is not a deeper relationship and level of uh, connection and hands-on experience with a mentor, 
it, it, it's not a convivial tool. If it replaces that relationship or so blends and molds uh, or sorry, melts the, the relationship it, that it can't be identified as, as a, a student teacher, student, student relationship anymore, you know, because it's replacing expensive parts of that with mm. a, a new tool, um, you get into to trouble. So I'm not a, a, a Luddite, but I do look back at the way, even at Sterling, we applied these tools to our um, educational pedagogy and our, our model and wish that we'd ask some different and deeper questions because it's quite alluring. And in a panic like the, the pandemic, it, it really raced ahead of our judgment of, of um, how um, meaningfully or badly even that it was impacting the, the education. So access to information and accentuating the student-teacher relationship with the use of technology to me is a convivial use. Another piece of it, of course, is this technology, whether it's you know AI or any other form, we need citizens, community members who understand it. And, and so it's here. It, we're living in this complex technological world and not all of it's convivial, um, but we can still inform people about not just how to tell the difference. That's That should be relatively easy for critical thinkers to do, but how to form the values to, to, to know how to use the tools. And I think uh, some of the smaller colleges are, are doing this, but really thinking deeply about um, the, the, the values proposition behind um, limiting and controlling and understanding the impact of, of technology. Yeah, so fascinating and, and so important right now. And gosh, I'm, I'm struck by the, by the term convivial um, I actually studied some Latin in high school, and I imagine the the, the etymology of this term has something to do with living together. Um, and when I hear the term used, it brings up a sense of of uh, joyfulness, of 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 simpatico. And at the end of the day, we really are talking about living together, right? So many of the ecological challenges we're facing are are challenges where the balance of uh, living together with ecosystems, with each other, with uh, the various creatures inhabiting our shared Mother Earth uh, are, are, are not in balance, are not stewarded in an ethos of love and care and compassion and kindness. And so I'm curious, how, how did you guys come up with conviviality as, as the focal point? And my goodness, it's, it's such a beautiful, potent word to, to focus on. Yeah. You know, I, other than in you know, sort of undergraduate and graduate school, that sort of thing, I, I hadn't really come across conviviality in 30 plus years of working in higher education, which might also, that's another conversation. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what I, I was reintroduced to it conceptually um, by uh, the book that Chelsea Green published, Lean, Lean Logic, and uh, Surviving the Future, which was edited by Sean Chamberlain. And um, David Fleming, an economist, talked about uh, the ways in which conviviality were important to our understanding of how we would uh, survive in, in the future, how we should live and how we should survive. And then, you know, the connection to Illich and building on that, you know, the use of the word is, is, is complicated. 
you're what you're drawing from it is you know part of the the intention that I think all colleges and universities should have, foundations should aspire to, mission-driven companies like Chelsea Green should um, put forward in the way that they um, um, they profit in 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 their businesses. And if we do that, if we are conscientious about uh, building conviviality, strengthening communities as a result, then you know what we do is we we uh, we create um, a sense of connection, and we um, limit uh, the 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 sense of um, estrangement that that we have. You know, the decisions that we need to make about pesticide use have to do with our estrangement from each other and the natural natural world. You know, you see weeds in your yard and you use a herbicide to take care of that. It's using a set of values that it really is, one, one could argue selfish, one could argue um, also uh, about creating a vision of what you think nature should look like. Um, but what's behind that is an estrangement from nature. Right, and an estrangement from the care of what it would mean um, to someone else's health to be using that product. Um, that's that's where I think you know. Do we want to take care of our yards in a more ecological way? And are there you know, tools that we can use to uh, uh, achieve that? Absolutely. Maybe you can convince people to make that transition. But why are they making the transition? Do they feel a deeper sense of connection to, to their neighbors, being the animals and, and insects and plants, as well as, as the actual physical neighbors at the next address is, is where the work needs to, to be done. Well, and, and one of the things I love about Chelsea Green uh, publishing and and the ecosystem of authors and thought leaders at Chelsea Green and have loved for years and years is there's a, a very real focus on what can be done in our own yards, our own neighborhoods, our own communities. Uh, it, there, there really is this very practical hands-on, uh, some of it kind of folky in a way and, and much of it very science-informed uh, how beautiful and it's it's i love that it's uh you know it's not a bunch of uh technocentric or uh you know whiz bang you know here here's the latest it's 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 a lot of very deep thoughtful yeah. time-tested wisdom and knowledge that is shared through this publishing company and that's really a curriculum if you if you if i think back on what drew me to to making this personal transition you know, Tara Viva, the, um, the book Vandana Shiva um, published not too, not too long ago with us, you know, these big ideas of a lifetime of, of commitment to the earth and our connection to it. And then to be able to, you know, pick up a book like The Art of Fermentation yeah. and, and create something delicious. Like that's the world we want to live in, right? Like, we need to think the big thoughts. We need to make the grand and um, firm commitments that that need to be made in order to make the planet um, livable um, for all all species. Um, 
And we also need to, as a, as a species, as humans, as primates, to find a way to live in a world that is full of joy. That's sort of the conversation you and I've had before. Um, and all of that's important and all of it is, is related. And colleges should think of their curricula in that way, lifelong experience and development of of, of people who are going to be in our, our communities. And, you know, thankfully there are, there's a publisher like Chelsea Green and other publishers who are taking that from that, that politics to the practice of, of the things that, that, that make our lives better and more meaningful. I love it. I'm just right. I mean, I, the cookbooks, I, I, I think I'm, I'm just soon I'm going to have the opportunity to to edit a cookbook and I I, I need the, a little bit of a break from some of the deeper thinking yeah. <laughs> to, to some really cool uh, recipes and I think um, you know I would imagine your bookshelf looks like you've got a lot of books there I don't know if you have any cookbooks behind you but we all need I that do, actually that mix. yeah uh, in, in right, our, right in our here line. is one yeah, there you go yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for the good cook, cookbooks out there in the in the kitchen time that we yeah. get. Yeah, yeah, I, friends. You know, yeah. Part of why I loved you know, and my professional life has been in the arts, and it's been in in the sort of agriculturally focused educational model. Is you know, it's, it really is all about joy and the, and the, the human experience and and moving yourself through life based on uh, you know your values and values that are informed by others but it's also hands-on and i and i think all of us you know you were saying how things we need to think about our own personal way of of impacting these these bigger challenges that we face it's it's just so much more joyful and more profound when you can find a way to do it with with your intentions daily your hands and and, and the way that you do your work yeah, here, here. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. I loved when, when I, you know, was at Sterling and I would see students working with the draft horses. Those studio classes, you know, it's a very inefficient way. One faculty member and a student on a wagon, not, not cost effective in the way that colleges and universities think about education. And I remember encountering that, that um, learning model and thinking, this is private lessons, you know, cello, right? It's it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's a faculty member expressing their passion, their vision for how this work should be done and a student screwing up, you know, eliminating, uh, you know, a row of carrots that were not ready to be harvested by virtue going off a little ways. And then, you know, a, a musician giving a recital where, you know, it's it, it can't be perfect yet. It takes time. It takes practice um, and it takes um, uh, a, a relationship to faculty that I think is, is unfortunately under threat in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, you're really, you're hitting on something here for me with this notion of practice, this experience of practice and cultivating practice. And my sense is that we've, we've transitioned into a world now where we've developed some false expectations around immediacy of results. Mm. And, you know, I'm just thinking about how important it is for each of us to uh, engage in the cultivation of a practice or many practices, whether it's cooking or tending to the carrots or practices of conviviality. I think even the, the social uh, infrastructure of 
conviviality perhaps has atrophied quite a bit in our in our culture, especially here in the United States in recent years. And and I'm I'm very curious for to hear from you as both a publisher, well, I guess all three, a publisher, a philanthropist, and an educator. Uh, what can we be doing other other than getting more folks to read more Chelsea Green books, right? <laughs> Um, and what can we be doing to to cultivate much more conviviality in our world, in our communities, in our society? Yeah, you know, it's it's cliche, but you know, acknowledging that it's important, right? Yeah, you know, if you think about our civic dialogue right now, I think most of us would agree that it falls below the standard of civility and conviviality in any you know any meaningful way in the media, sure, but among our neighbors, does it have to? I, I think you know there are, that there's a lot loaded in, into that, but it is a re-establishing of priorities that I think is important. Is it important to me that these people I encounter in my daily life who are members of the community with me and the ways in which I um, move through the world um, are strengthened by their exposure to me? Um, and again, that's a complex, you know, who's measuring that and, and how much privilege is packed into all of that. I, I do understand that. But living conscientiously, I think, is, is a really important piece of it. As I think about how institutions could make those changes, you know, institutions are tools as, as well. You know, colleges and universities are tax exempt because they serve a social purpose. They are a societal tool to achieve an end. And so we've decided that what is really important is, you know, the ways in which, uh, I'll, I'll just use this, it's not a silly example, but an example around food, since we've talked about food already, you know, how many choices of breakfast, boxed breakfast cereal are you going to find in the, the, the dining hall? How many different global cuisines can you have um, uh, from which to choose? regardless of what resources it takes to, to deliver that. Um, what's much more interesting and what we can do is do dishes together, <laughs> right? We yeah. can actually sit down and have a shared uh, meal, um, maybe based in the same ingredients where that's possible and food allergies and all these other things that come into play, but like a, a shared communal experience around food is just one example that I think is powerful enough. Uh, and when one commits oneself to it, really does begin to, to transform how we relate to each other. So it is in these important but small acts that I think we make a contribution to, to the, the change that you and I are sort of referencing. Um, and you know, each one of those examples um, that I just shared you could begin to look at the sourcing of where those boxes of cereal come from. And then you could begin to look at the sources of the meal that, that you might prepare that is a little bit more ecologically sensitive and that you share together. And so there are many layers to those um, uh, acts of, of, of values of uh, application and decision-making about um, how you guide yourself through your life and through your day. Yeah, and that's that's the you know you you in the context of publishing and the context of higher education, that is really um, that daily act I think is is really important. Mm. 
Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I have to acknowledge that the dinging of, of the message is not a convivial tool. <laughs> right? Like things overwhelm us every day. Yeah. And um, the last thing I would want to do is give uh, anyone the impression that by publishing books or providing a certain kind of education, that it's easy, right? You know, if I think about the kinds of ways I was living in my 30s, how I'm living now and how I anticipate I will live in the future, they're they're pretty radically different. I've come to the conclusion that I want to live here in Michigan because that's where my family is. That is not a decision I would have made at 22. Um, But the things that I've done between then and now have prepared me to, to play my part here in my, my home community. Mm. So beautiful. Let me, let me remind oh. our audience that, yeah. uh, sorry, go ahead, Matthew. No, it's that I hope that it has. We'll find out. I just yeah. got here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Matthew Durr, the executive director of the Chelsea Green Foundation and editor and acquirer of Chelsea Green Publishing. And uh, Matthew, I, I, I want to make sure to mention a few of the links you've provided. Uh, ChelseaGreen.com is one and in the United Kingdom, it's ChelseaGreen.co.uk. And we'll include these links in the show notes, of course. Um, you can find information about the foundation at ChelseaGreenFoundation.org. And you can also connect with the Chelsea Green community on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, Chelsea Green Pub at, on Facebook, at Chelsea Green on Twitter, and Chelsea Green Books on Instagram. And want to be sure to give a shout out to our several uh, sponsors and partners who make the Why on Earth Community podcast series possible, along with the rest of our Regeneration Renaissance work in the disciplines of culture, economy, and ecology. And this includes, of course, Chelsea Green Publishing. And we've got a wonderful uh, offering for our audience, a 35% discount on the books, the audiobooks that Chelsea Green provides. You can go to our uh, partners and sponsors page at whyonearth.org to connect in and see the deal and link through and so forth. You'll see other uh, special deals and discounts from other partners there as well, including uh, Purium Organic Superfoods, Wele Waters Soaking Salts, Earth Heroes Sustainable Products, Soil Works Biodynamic Garden Preparation, Earth Coast Productions, and of course, a special shout out to our many ambassadors and our growing global network of ambassadors who are doing work, community leading work, thought leading work, organization leading work all around the world. And uh, many of our ambassadors have joined our monthly giving program. And if you haven't yet joined and you'd like to, you can sign up at any level that works well for you on our donate support button at whyonearth.org. If you'd like to support at the $33 or higher level, we will happily send you a jar of the Waylay Waters hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salt. I'm holding it up to the camera here, our eucalyptus blend as an example. Uh, this is a beautiful way to enhance our personal self-care practices, farm to tub, we like to call it. Oh, and like we, we source our, uh, our hemp from a few different regenerative and biodynamic farms here in Colorado. So a great uh, shout out and, and thanks and gratitude to so many of our 
friends and colleagues and supporters. And with with Chelsea Green, um, so central in the regeneration renaissance movement, Matthew, that from my purview seems to be not only emerging, but really activating and amplifying now worldwide. Uh, it's awesome to see not only the thought leadership uh, in the marketplace of ideas, as it were, but also the way in which Chelsea Green as an organization is uh, embodying and demonstrating some of the best practices, including, for example, uh, you guys are now a 100% employee owned company. And I, I wanted to be sure to uh, ask you about this and, and have you tell us a bit about some of the corporate practices that Chelsea Green has has uh, committed to. Yeah. You know, when when you talk about a, a, a company, a for-profit company, you know, what I think comes to most people's minds is a boardroom and a, and a group of, small group of people who have ownership and a bigger group of, of people who um, work for them. Um, what I find really fascinating and, and somewhat familiar, the, the sense of agency and ownership that faculty and, and people feel in higher education, I also see uh, at, at, at Chelsea Green among my, uh, my colleagues. As employees, they um, are owners um, in, in the company. They own the stock. It's their retirement. Uh, and then so in every decision that we make, you know, I'll talk about the ways in which I'm most involved in, in the company as a consultant. I sit with the editors and we decide which books we make publish, why we want to publish those books, what the relationship with the author will be like, and, and how we arrive at a decision to publish or not publish something has everything to do with the ways in, in, in which we want to further the mission of the business. We also need to make sure that the books that we choose are profitable and that the company is profitable for everyone's benefit. And so there's a kind of ownership. And by ownership, I don't mean the actual ownership, though that is true as well. But the kind of ownership that we have for the, the decisions that, that we make and the interaction and engagement of, of the editors, uh, the design, uh, the publicity, the marketing team um, has, there's a kind of esprit de corps there that I think is really deeply informed by the fact that, that Chelsea Green is, a, is an ESOP. Big step for an independent publisher to make. And, but if you think about what publishing is about, you know, ideas and, and, and again, a, a deep sense of, of conviction, the fact that Chelsea Green is, is one of the few independent publishers out there that is an ESOP, I think has a lot to do with, with its success. Um, you know, you, as you would imagine, you know, we, we try to do um, our, our printing in a way and choose uh, both distribution and um, uh, publication practices that are, are consistent with the ecological values that, that we write about and publish. And so we're one of the very first uh, publishing companies to have made those uh, commitments and, and to sustain those commitments. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, that's just so obvious that it's not remarkable. That's where, that's the sweet spot of where you want to be, right? Um, and, I, and I feel that way often at, at Chelsea Green, that um, we're in sync with one another. Um, we care about 
um, publishing with integrity. And then we care about business practices that that are um, based in that same um, conviction about uh, integrity. It's so beautiful. In 40 I, I... years is nothing to, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not, the, certainly there are many, many publishing houses, independent otherwise, that are older. But the space that you're describing, or, or what was formerly just called the sustainability space, and of course that those words are all evolving and and and, and changing. Organic, you know, I, I think I'll go with Elliot Coleman. It's sort of organic, is the is the way to go, and say that you know this is a, a publishing house that's sort of been on that that leading edge of that language and that idea of what um, um, sustainability organic organic thinking meant and means and so the fact that it's flourishing we hope um the company's had a lot to do with it its authors have had a lot to do with it yeah it's an incredible ecosystem of thought leaders and folks doing this amazing work in the community and a lot of people have their own beautiful farms and live lives that very much um you see on the pages of the books. It's a kind of authenticity that that I think is is hard to, to find. Hopefully easier and easier to find yeah. as as we go forward. And I love I love your when it's so obvious that it isn't remarkable. I mean, may yeah. that be one of our, you know, uh, rallying cries perhaps with many of these threads that we're all working on in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's what 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 you're doing when in convening these 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 conversations, right? The, you know how how do you in in the context of a, a short time talking with someone really under understand what seems obvious to them, and and how does that inform the the choices people who hear them will will make going forward? Um, and I think you know publishing is a sector of of the economy and enterprise. That I think lends itself well to to uh, bringing those ideas forward, just as as these kinds of conversations do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and and you know one of the things just because you mentioned it, Matthew, that I love about podcasting that we we kind of like stumbled into it. We were out visiting our friends at Sustainable Settings, one of the biodynamic farms here in Colorado, and. And uh, Artem was with me, Nikolkov, the CEO of, uh, of uh, uh, Earth Coast Productions. And we thought, hey, let's bring the video cameras and we'll interview Brooke LeVan, right? And we, we did this little sit down interview under the apple tree with the birds chirping and realized afterward, wait a minute, we're, we're actually connected with a lot of people doing a lot of really important work and we can probably help share their stories and messages and amplify their voices out into the world. Let's do this. And so it just sort of organically, there's that word again, um, evolved. And I have to say as a, as a lifelong learner and, and passionate reader and, and writer, um, preparing for a podcast interview is one of my very favorite modes of learning. Actually, it's, yeah. it's, it's like I get to take a crash course on, on you and, Many of these other, you know, Chelsea Green authors and, and farmers and herbalists and executives and scientists and indigenous wisdom keepers and youth activists and so forth. And so it's, it's such a beautiful way for me to experience this, this connectivity that I think more and more of us are now 
cultivating in our lives and our communities locally, regionally, and globally. And, and it, I just, I end up feeling such a joy and nourishment uh, from this type of connection. And, and, you know, we, we could just be chit chatting about anything, but we're in, instead uh, you're having some fun and maybe, you know, telling a joke or two, but we're, we're staying pretty focused on our core purpose and mission and the work we're, we're filling up our years and decades with. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a depth of, I guess, meaning and acknowledgement and visibility there that, um, boy, for me, it's it just, it's so wonderful to be able to share that with folks. Yeah. It, you know, what I have encountered just listening to a few of the podcasts that, that you shared with me, it, you know, you move beyond the, abs, the abstract experience of, of the, the podcast, right? Like, you know, it matters how prepared you are for the conversation. That, that's a kind of um, application of, of learning and knowledge that is really hands-on, right? You know, there are plenty of things that I read and I'll never encounter the author and that's gratifying. But when you're actually confronted with the opportunity and I use confronted eventually with the opportunity to, to, to sit with one and someone and really talk through what, what they have been doing and what they've been thinking about, um, that that's applied, you know, that that's, that's putting your um, experience with the written word in this instance um, uh, to, to good use to, to, to inspire a conversation, which is really what I think um, that kind of conversational storytelling makes for a really rich podcast, really rich interactive kinds of experiences for listeners. There's that conviviality again. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't mean that we can't have conflict, but you know, in, in, in the context of ideas, you can have that conflict in ways that I think are, are, are gratifying as, as well as convivial. So I, I'm, I'm like getting this new tagline, like cultivating culture of conviviality, and then maybe side note, like, and occasional conflict. Conflict, yes, exactly. <laughs> so we can navigate conflict, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just so wonderful. Well, Matthew, I, I know that um, uh, we're probably about at the time we can wrap up our podcast, and, and I'm so happy that you're uh, willing to take a few extra minutes for our quote unquote behind the scenes segment that we share with our ambassador network exclusively. And again, uh, folks, if, if you'd like to engage with our ambassador network and, and become an ambassador, please go to whyonearth.org and start your journey there. You'll find the uh, become an ambassador page. Um, and, and for our ambassadors, not only do we have a number of recorded behind the scenes segments with our special podcast guests, we also have videos from a variety of conferences and workshops that are not available another way. And because we also host a monthly online meetup with ambassadors worldwide that gets recorded, those are available in the archive as well. Uh, so there's a lot of additional value there for folks who would like to access that. And uh, yeah, we're, Matthew, going to transition in just a few minutes to our behind the scenes. Uh, segment and and before we do that, I just I want to first of all thank you for uh, being a guest on our Why on Earth Community podcast, and secondly, want to open the floor. Uh, if there's anything additional you'd like to share with our audience, calls to action, whatever it might be, words of wisdom, uh, please the the floor is yours. Oh, that that's generous, and you know I 
I really do feel honored to to be able to have the conversation. You know, you and I've had a couple of opportunities to catch up with one another. Um, and I was excited to, to have a chance to, to sit down with you today. Words of wisdom, you know, I, I've been around so many people who I thought were wiser or, or smarter or, um, uh, you know, more accomplished than, than I am that I, I don't ordinarily think about having the floor and, and holding forth. But I think that surround yourself with people, good people. It's so important. Be challenged by them uh, in your daily life. And if there's anything that I took from 30 years in higher education, and again, at, at Chelsea Green, it's how fortunate I am to be surrounded by really interesting people, not all of whom I agree with all the time, uh, but but people who, who are driven by conviction, even when their convictions are different than mine, inspire me. And, and that's an important part of, of doing good work. You... Um, you mentioned earlier this the the motto of Antioch College, which is "Be ashamed to die uh, until you've won some victory for humanity." And I chuckled because, of course, it's such a Victorian concept. Be ashamed, uh, uh, but I, I think if you surround yourself with interesting people and you think about the the time that we have on this mortal coil and the desire to do good, to to actually do something victorious for humanity, or humanity's relationship with the natural world, um, then that then one can live a meaningful life and a gratifying life. Um, and, and not always an easy life, but but one that um that that you can be proud of. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's a real joy to have this opportunity to visit with you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.